Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Sorry, these stations, uh, we have assigned seats. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 103, Context is for Kings, comes to you right now via Subspace Radio. And just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at the episode. Pete, let's start with ratings for that that episode one that aired over the air. The old-fashioned way they used to do it. Uh, They didn't have micellar spores to, you know, get get their signals all over the place. So pedestrian. It was was a quainter time. Uh, Had a 1.9 rating. That was third highest of the night uh, behind football, uh, which had a 6.3. And the lead-in 60 minutes, which had a... At a 2.7, so I, I think it was in the neighborhood of 9 or 10 uh, million viewers. A, a very, very respectable start, particularly when you figure at the end of the day, it's about how many of those people can you move over to all access. It's about turning eyeballs into subscribers, and uh, certainly, a, I don't want to say lower like it's a negative thing, but it's a different threshold, and uh, we're off to the races. Completely, and when you factor in that the game went over time, that 60 minutes was outside of its time slot so rightfully some of those ratings the 2.7 that 60 minutes have there's intended bleed over for star trek discovery and then there's what hit uh cbs all access to get the second episode and then there's netflix and the rest of the world and by all accounts matt this has been received very well uh internationally so uh there we go Pete, adding to the list of info, I see you've put on our notes here that Amanda Grayson, uh, an actress, has been announced. Now, if you're a new listener or if you're an old listener, you know that I like to run spoiler-free. I keep it pure. I'm a, I'm a traditional kind of guy. I read my Alice in Wonderland on, on paper books, if you've ever <laughs> seen one. But, Pete, I will, I will allow, if you want to say who it is, I don't know, should, should you tell me or should I? I do have one question. Should I ask the yes, no question? How do you want to handle this? Oh, spoiler, Pete. Ask your yes, no question. Um, is it Winona Ryder? No. Ah, that is a missed opportunity in my book. Well, I guess then go. If, if, if she has an actress and it's not Winona Ryder, uh, I guess go ahead and say who it is. That's not going to be any kind of plot stuff. It's just, hey, the character exists out there, which is. I mean, obviously, the character always existed in the canon, but we have a better sense of of her after this episode. So, Pete, who is it? It would be Canadian actress Mia Kirshner, uh, perhaps most famous for the L word, but also having played Mandy in the first several seasons of 24. Matt, I've seen side by side images of Amanda in the original series and this actress and she bears a striking similarity just a quick search on google and as you were saying that i was saying oh my goodness it's amanda grayson so there you go so yes winona Ryder would have been great and to bring that that film gravitas she's got another show right now also popular not that they couldn't do some kind of you know schedule who's he what's it's but uh I'll take uh, Mia Kirshner um, mentioned as character tonight in this episode. And you know what? I don't want to upset any listeners out there. Let me just say, Pete, 
probably the Kelvin versus main timeline debate with her inclusion, despite the fact that she clearly is, you know, playing a character that existed prior to the Kelvin timeline creation, blah, blah, blah. That probably wasn't worth it versus, hey, here's a lady that looks like the lady from Classic Trek. Let's go. There you are. Pete, do you have any other soothsaying about the future? Have you taken the spores into less than a week's time in the future, Pete? Yes, that would be New York Comic Con for us. We'll be there uh, pretty much every day. We're still back and forth on on whether we'll be there Sunday. Uh, but the big day for us is Saturday, Matt, uh, amongst other things, uh, we'll have the panel with Star Trek Discovery. They will also be at the Paley Center afterwards. Unfortunately, we will be unable to attend that with other New York Comic Con business, but we will cover the news out of there. Indeed, probably late Saturday next or uh, Sunday morning, we will have uh, things posted uh, to this feed, regardless of where you're listening, uh, on uh, on the Star Trek Discovery panel. We will certainly be updating the Pop Culture Podcast feed uh, throughout the time at New York Comic Con with, uh, with several stuff, whether it's done by day or done by the things that we see. We're going to make decisions as we, uh, as we, you know, as news develops as we're there. But uh, cannot wait to see the uh, Star Trek Discovery cast and crew at New York Comic Con, uh, specifically at the theater in Madison Square Garden, which is going to be a, a, a hopping place. Uh, the Discovery panel taking place after Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., before The Punisher, which itself is before The Walking Dead. So let's, let's blow the roof off MSG. But more immediately, Pete, let's head into the mission briefing. Six months later, Matt, we pick up with Michael Burnham aboard a shuttlecraft here on route to Tellen. Uh, I love the way that this is framed. Uh, Sonika Martin-Green's downturn gazed. This looks like a mugshot. It's, it certainly is a compelling way to jump into things. And I think that there's an argument to be made um, uh, and certainly I'm not the first one to suggest this, but there's an argument to be made that this is the Star Trek Discovery pilot. What we have seen is a prequel of sorts. I think that the the overall story and this episode is better off with us having seen what happened six months ago. Uh, so it certainly is not a complaint on my part, but here we are kind of jumping right into the middle of the action here. The three other prisoners are talking about how they're going to be mining for the war effort, for the great glory, sarcasm, uh, of the Federation. Uh, one of them recognizes her as Michael Burnham, the mutineer. Uh, and a third uh, prisoner, she kind of rather disparagingly notes that her cousin was on the Europa. 8,000 others are dead because of Michael Burnham. 8,186, Matt, to be exact. You know, let's let's show a little precision here. But there's a proximity alert. Uh, the pilot speaking with Starbase 18 there uh, is told that they have bugs in the works out there. She's got to take care of her, herself, Matt. She puts on the old EV suit and uh, heads out to the exterior Sure, this is this is going to work out. 
I was kind of surprised to see that there was only the pilot on board. That said, I know that the the four prisoners are are seemingly well shackled. So, you know, if it's a foolproof shackle system, then you don't need a guard there, uh, except for in situations like this. But hey, um, Burnham recognizes these little critters. They feed on electricity. GS fifty four, man. You don't know this organism. You know Come what, Pete? Uh, my my copy of uh, of. Uh, worlds of the federation seems to not include this particular species and that's either because it was published a good 20 years ago or there's a cover-up about this species that when you get to the next generation era they don't want to talk about it pete well regardless of their feelings about it here uh the pilot needs to get it off the shuttle and of course with a thud uh, and amid the discussion here that if she doesn't do it before it drains their power and they run out of oxygen or freeze to death, suddenly her safety tether is disconnected and goodbye pilot, goodbye autopilots. And now there's real trouble for these shackled prisoners. Uh, or is there very quickly <laughs> a blue light appears out of it, projecting it is the discovery uh, great introduction for the ship. I mean, Pete, you don't get much more elemental in terms of the physical blocking of a scene, mm-hmm. even the scene done digitally for the superior thing to be on up high, which is how it's presented here. We get a beauty pass as the, uh, the prison shuttle is brought into the shuttle bay in the rear. We pass all around the ship. You know, we see those, those two cutout sections. We see NCC one zero three one. And I mean, it's, it, it I'm not 110% in love with the design of this ship, but boy, Pete, it is pretty to look at. This was some straight-up Starship porn, Matt, particularly when you consider that this design is largely based on the work of Star Wars artist Ralph McQuarrie. Probably some people would debate that at CBS Legal since that was done for the film end. And this is the TV end. Star Trek having been cut in half when, you know, Viacom was split in half. But Pete, I I hear you. Uh, We get to the credits. Some notable things from there include that that the director of photography is not Guillermo Navarro for this. It is rather the other DP that works on the show, Darren Tiernan. Uh, I must say, I rather preferred his choice of camera angles and uh, color palette in this episode. Don't know how much of that was intentional to separate the Senju from the Discovery, but I liked the camera work here better. Uh, we have the writing of the script credit goes to Berg, Harberts, and Sweeney with story by Fuller, Berg, and Harberts. Yes, and I have to say, of all of the images in the credit sequence, um, the the one that feels the most Star Trekky to me is the flower that opens up with the the middle part that kind of snaps as the discovery goes by, and certainly that has resonance to this episode. Uh, when we hit. The story again after the credits, I want to note that we have a handheld shot with the camera properly oriented. Um, we are leaving the uh, the prison shuttle. It's a slick looking shuttle bay. 
Uh, Pete, to my recollection, certainly in the course of Next Generation, we never saw, we never had characters inside the main shuttle bay. I think there was a brief model shot of it being depressurized from the outside. This is what a main shuttle bay looks like. This is what you get X number of years later where you can do a digital extension of a large but not gigantic filming space to make it shuttle bay one and uh, the prisoners look look the floors are clean look at everything this is a brand new starship pete i love me some expertly created exposition where characters say real things to introduce things to the audience and this is it to a t i mean it's pete this is the new people on board get all sorts of introductions it's perfect 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 it is. And you know what I love is uh, some Rika Sharma who comes in as uh, Commander Landry, security chief of the Discovery, ex of Battlestar Galactica, um, one of the final five Cylons. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, certainly a good memory there, Pete. I, I must admit I didn't uh, I didn't quite make the connection. I was saying she's so darn familiar, but, you know, she was uh, – so believable here is Landry, uh, who immediately calls them garbage uh, and <laughs> notes, again, effortless exposition, which I love. She notes that Burnham is Starfleet's first mutineer. We are uh, going to talk about that later because that claim, given the history of Starfleet, a hundred years at this point, it's kind of hard to believe. Regardless, the uh, expositional prisoners note that there are a lot of silver shirts, which at first I was not quite sure what that meant. But quickly with uh, the intercut of the uh, the insignialis badges, which they refer to as black badges, which I love because the name is more ominous than the blank badge. Um, yes. It just something immediately is up here and you don't need marine uniforms by navy people to say hey the marines are guarding something it's just kind of in the air uh, but pete it's also chow time yes we get to the discovery mess hall uh what humanizes a ship more than seeing people eat and so far we've seen the very cold and sterile main shuttle bay we've seen the hallways we've seen that there's a lot of science uniforms and black badges what whatever the the black badges and and black alerts later matt could mean but you know time for some chow and we see all sorts of different aliens there there's actually what seems like an etching of the shenzhou um over on the the side there's a couple glass uh, partitions there where there are uh, ships uh, and then we we see a familiar face we do now as we were uh, not just podcasting the first two episodes but also um, as I have since gone back to re rewatch them um, you know we discussed how uh, how the young ensign was killed off on the on the Senju and uh, obviously you know Saru is gonna somehow make it to discovery and whatnot uh, I just assumed everyone else on that bridge of the Shenzhou was now fodder for the books and the comics and the backstories. And if you're really, really lucky, a uh, short digital, you know, series to be an interstitial between part, parts A and B of this season, whatever it might be. No, no, Pete. There's Kayla, the pilot. Kayla of the Detmer. Uh, just to, to give her full name. And she is actually in the one book that is out. 
Uh, but she's different here, Pete. She has what I think is meant to read as some sort of medical addition or medical um, attention over her eye. You know, it's it's vaguely reminiscent, you know, of Seven of Nines thing, which I'm not mm-hmm. saying Borg. I'm just saying it's kind of like a bone splint of the future. And this shaved portion over her head, which to me was even more striking. That means they said, hey, lady, uh, we need you in hair and makeup tomorrow to shave part of your hair. Um, and, and it's just so evocative of of injury without having, quite frankly, the the goop and the the uh, damage that we're going to see on the Glen later on. Yeah, and as Michael sits down here, uh, obviously Detmer wants nothing to do with her. Uh, doesn't even make eye contact and moves away. So there's no place to go but with the other prisoners there, and uh, the one I like to call Beardo. Uh, cause, uh, the other one with the bald head got a name. He was stone Beardo wants to make it 8,187, but that's his mistake. Indeed it is. I like how quickly Burnham takes out all three in and of itself. It's kind of a sort of exposition because I don't know that we saw her fight. We didn't see her kind of do fighting combat, uh, in the first two episodes. Yes, there was the Vulcan neck pinch of uh, Captain Georgiou, but here we see her in action, kind of proper fight scene. No, you know, William Shatner fists held together to bang someone <laughs> and none of the iconic wharf palm, you know, flat palm to the, to the face here. Right. It's a solid, it's... quick fight. Um, Landry though, who had let the fight go for a moment, pulls a phaser and notes that uh, the captain wants to see Burnham. Yes, and in the turbo lift here, the Vulcan martial art that she just practiced is uh, given the name here, Susmana, and Landry uh, thinks that Vulcans should stick to logic. That's a, that's a security burn right there. It is. We get the bridge reveal, Saru in the big chair. I have to admit, Pete, slightly uh, disappointed. This is a set that is certainly very similar to the Shenzhou. I'm okay with it being a set redress. I have no question of that. I understand the economics of it, but the the angles that we got to me did not provide significant differences. Not even like in the way, again, from what we saw, maybe there's stuff that will reveal itself in future episodes. But I think of the uh, the Enterprise D bridge from the series and then how they added which at the time I thought was useless extras for the purposes of widescreen on either, you know, on, on the far extremes. But at least there you could go, oh, look, it's new thingies. This just felt like they took the Shenzhou Bridge and said, it's not on the bottom half anymore, it's on the top half. I'm all right with the way that the bridge is. It's, again, as, as you mentioned, part of the realities of this production I'm more interested in the story going on in this ship and you enter the captain's ready room and it's dark and they address it. Indeed they do. But Pete, before we address that, I just want to talk, you know, I know we have mud coming later on. Um, so we have another old friend here. There's the of the triple mm-hmm. on the desk. Yes. Uh, the, the trilling noise familiar uh almost instantaneously to any trekkie uh to know what that is and Lorca explaining here that uh the reason he's keeping it dark is a recent battle injury we have a close-up of the eye there um and it's actually both eyes that have been injured and if he wants to keep them 
he's got to gradually increase the light. Um, so, you know, this is, this is shades of, of Ahab right from the get go. Absolutely. And, uh, very quickly he offers her a fortune cookie and, uh, great little monologue here, uh, saying that, uh, fortune cookies were a family business. Uh, this is all before hunger and want was done away with a hundred years ago. So a little bit of a, 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 a of a, a pessimism in this, uh, you know, in this near perfection that has been created on earth and in, in the Federation where, where, where so much is accessible. Yeah. And that she's done her best Burnham has to bring, uh, hunger, need and want back with her actions six months ago. Uh, and, uh, he certainly knows her well. He has read and reread her file. Uh, and then we get, uh, uh, again, this is, this is a, a gold standard. Perhaps there are some platinum standards out there, but this is a gold standard for how to do exposition so, so naturally. It's here that she notes that her change in prisons was done so without warning, which is, you know, it, it always should be the case that the prisoner receives some sort of advance warning. It's also very, very odd and coincidental that she has ended up here. There's clearly the suggestion that Lorca has gone out to recruit her. Uh, he mentions, hey, while you're here, we are looking for trained minds. Yeah, and the worry about putting her in the brig, someone will die. But hey, she has this uh, high-level training in uh, quantum physics and uh, it's going to be a little while till, you know, the engineers clear out those lightning bugs in the shuttle there. So he announces to her he has something on deck that requires every trained mind available and that she is going to help. She, however, is not inclined to help, uh, but it's made clear that he's not looking for a volunteer uh, she she's going to be put to work. She will be given quarters. Don't forget that the goal is to help win the war, which I think is a great little line inserted there to say it's great to have this philosophical thing of, no, I must receive the punishment for the, the things I did, but there's a war on. It's time to help. Um, with that, uh, she's given back to Landry, who, uh, who escorts her back to quarters. Uh, she notes that... Uh, the Burnham will be on the day shift uh, and it's going to be picked up, escorted at 0800. Otherwise, she's confined to quarters. Uh, I would be interested, Pete, if we have any naval people out there. You know, there's got to be more than day shift and night shift. They can't have, you know, they can't have uh, two 12-hour days, I wouldn't I wouldn't think. But, you know, maybe maybe either someone from the future or anyone with, uh, with naval <laughs> or military background could tell us, you know, is it day shift, night shift, and overnight? I don't, I don't know. But... Peachy's taken to her quarters, which luckily for story purposes appear really spare and cold, although we're about to find that that's not quite the case. Pete, take us to what might have been the best part of the episode in my eyes. Well, first off, these quarters are rather spacious, <laughs> uh, complete with the USS Discovery linens mat that I wondered aloud on Twitter uh, if Bed Bath & Beyond carried them. Um, and has taken on a little bit of life on its own. We can talk about later. Uh, but then comes in uh, the bubbly, the ebullient um, cadet Sylvia Tilly, uh, a bright spot in an overall dark episode. 
Pete, character appreciation at full sight. Tilly is this bundle of nervous energy. She's talking about how her special needs in the past have precluded a roommate. She is cheery. She is smiling. She is adorable. She is wonderful. She wants to shake hands with her new friend, making friends. Burnham, hearing none of it, which is a really interesting thing because you're just instantly on Tilly's side. We've all been low person on the totem pole. We've all been, hey, you know, we're working in close quarters. Nice to meet you. Maybe we'll be friends, that kind of thing. Um, but Burnham just gives the look. Um, and uh, that's when it's part of the Tilly has an allergy to polyurethane and other things that are in the Not bed. Not just and... polyurethane. What? Matt. Give me the list, Pete. Give me the list. Polyester uh, viscoelastic polyurethane foam. And the result is chronic snoring. So so this is uh, this is serious. Um, and also a story point for later, which is great. Uh, but, you know, jumping just the tiniest bit ahead about Tilly, I love that she announced later that she's going to be a Starfleet captain. Uh, I wonder how much of the creation of this character um, and and some of the shepherding of her uh, going forward will be under the watch of uh Kirsten Beyer. Well, Pete, speaking of allergies, it did quickly cross my mind, you know, really allergies in the future. I just want to remind everybody the captain, well, maybe not quite captain yet, but officer James T. Kirk is allergic not only to the vaccine for Melvar and mud fleas, but also <laughs> Retinax 5, that eye medication. Yes. Um, let alone some other allergies that exist because uh, to my vague surprise, Memory Alpha has a whole page on allergies and starfleck starfleck star trek um so it, allergies are out there and i just i love it is so wonderful in a show of competent experienced officers in a show that is also keeping the audience a bit at arm's distance because this is not the welcoming positive world of normal star trek there's a war on so that's understandable but we have tilly acting adorable, acting nervous, acting like we would if we got to show up on the Discovery for real and just continues to be the proxy for the audience and the person you can say, that's me. I'm I'm nervous and I'm concerned about snoring and all these things. It, she's so incredibly human in a show about a perfect or near perfect future. Well, you know, she'll call Michael Mickey, she reasons, because she's only ever known one uh, Michael who was female, and that was Michael Burnham, you know, the mutineer. That's not you, is it? And thank goodness, Matt, the lights cut that long silence, and somehow um, the black alert klaxon was uh, warmer than the uh, attitude in the room. But somehow terrifying instantly terrifying probably because we instantly like tilly and there's all this kind of bubbly nervous you know hey we're we're gonna go to the stars and find the future we're gonna we're gonna do great things in starfleet uh, when i graduate one day um and then this black alert which not only we've never heard of that before and now there's this weird lighting but then the shot which is not thankfully which is not over Show, overly shown overly cut to but just the fact that we have burnham at the rear of the scene camera goes down and we see tilly kind of cringing in her bed curled up in terror it just adds to it it's all acting oh with that effect of water rising question mark not quite sure what that is but 
great, great mystery. Yeah, and she hasn't been briefed here, so she can't tell her. And to just, you know, on the other side, look at her pillow and and wish it away as we break the act. We pick up with Saru. Pardon me, Pete. First, Officer Saru. Uh, He's there to be the escort for Burnham. Uh, This is another example of Saru is really, really tall. Uh, He's chomping down on some blueberries. I just love the... The, the, the pedestrian nature of it, just chomping mm-hmm. on some blueberries uh, on his way from one spot to the next. Uh, he also gives a bit of exposition here. Again, just flawlessly effortless. He's proud of his ship, so he notes that the discovery is well-suited for up to 300 discrete science missions. So this is a science vessel, and it's all Doug Jones with the pause, the turn of the head, the <laughs> He doesn't answer, and that's immediately to the audience saying, hey, something is up here, as opposed to the lesser route, which is Sarah to say, Burnham, something else, well, I can't tell you that. Like, they don't need to hit it over the head. Let right. the guy act through all that latex, which he's the guy, and he brings it home. He eats up every scene that he's in, like these blueberries. <laughs> um, and I can't wait until we have more and more and more of him. Uh, we got the little effect off the the side of the head again, late in the episode. I, I want to get the description there. Um, but uh, he is now the first officer. He explains the, uh, the powers that be were impressed by his actions at the battle of the binary stars. They, they said the title of the previous episode, Matt. Um, and, uh, you know, the blueberries, the, the, the sharing of this with uh, this former officer that he served under, who's now Starfleet's first mutineer, um, she says she notes that they taste different. Uh, he believes that to be a function of the environment, not some kind of food synthesizer issue. So, you know, as walk and talks go, Matt, this one just hits everything you need to uh we even get some extra uh information on Lorca. uh saru notes that burnham is someone to be feared and this is despite the fact that uh Lorca is someone who does not have normal fears Mm -hmm. and i just want to note i i think this is a fair observation production wise i think that they have changed uh the the contact lenses slightly for Doug Jones, Saru's eyes, the color appear a little bit more, a little bit more uh, detailed, a little bit more polychromatic. I think it's not quite just, you know, green number 58. I think there's a little bit more oomph to them. And uh, I think we're better for it. As he drops her at engineering here, placing her in the hands of uh, Lieutenant Stamet, who we have not yet met. Um, it's the discussion here about the captain's funeral. He apparently gave a very, uh, you know, beautiful speech and, um, she's trying to ask for his forgiveness. She's trying to say, I'm sorry, but he's put a, uh, emotional force field up here, Matt. And like you said before, he knows that this captain, uh, does not seem to fear danger in the way normal beings do. He's not a human, of course. Um, that's Saru. However, uh, in his mind, 
she is indeed dangerous and uh, he intends to do a better job protecting his captain this time around. So there's just that little tinge at the end and it was well done and it was simultaneously heartbreaking. With that, Burnham enters engineering, which is too quiet for me. And that's not a, that's not a slam against the production. I think it's meant to be kind of, you know, eerily quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, it is said early on that Stamets is in an area which is off limits. Um, and just the whole area feels tremendously sterile, not the heartbeat of the ship. Again, not a production complaint. I think it's meant to be kind of under the umbrella of really secret, important things are going on here. And this isn't, you know, kind of hang out in the, in the chief engineer's office and, you know, or hang out with Scotty. This is kind of more serious business here. We are at war. Um, Burnham uh, tries to go to any old station, and this is when Tilly uh, says that there are assigned seats to kind of move move Burnham away. And with that, Pete, we finally get uh, the introduction of Stamets coming out of Secret Area, and uh, <laughs> it's the debut of Anthony Rapp, who has been so generous, I think, with his time and his energy and his enthusiasm on Twitter in the lead up to actually seeing the character. Indeed, and to finally get him, and now we've we've had almost all of our members of the main cast show up. Uh, you know, he's he's got the tube there, and he's got the tood, Matt. Yeah, giving her some attitude there. He he's kind of upset that he was out of the loop on her transfer, but then simultaneously thought that she'd be Vulcan, which I don't think is poor writing. I think it's just him putting up a wall, as are so many characters, because this is a you know Burnham is 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 clearly reviled in Starfleet. Um, however, he gives her code to reconcile and uh, you know work on it anywhere, not here. After all, there are not assigned seats. Ooh, retroactive Tilly burn. <laughs> Hashtag Team Tilly. How about the uh, yellow code uh, card that she's given? Highly evocative, though transparent, of uh, the original series. Oh, man, Pete, I can already see the articles being written about how Star Trek has a unified data storage and data transfer system. Whereas in Star Wars, you got to move stuff from disc ribbons to smaller things that you hand through doors before Darth Vader gets you. And it's just a whole, they got, they got to work on the cloud, man. And here, this is just quite, not quite the cloud, but, but yeah, it's, it's better data. Time passes though, Pete, she's still working on it. We get one of those time passing camera moves to show the passage of time. Um, I guess it's the end of the shift. Uh, we have Stamets on the hollow phone FaceTiming an old friend. Nice to see that uh, the uh, the famous Earth communication device builder, the Apple Company, is uh, still around <laughs> doing doing stuff. Um, I'm sure that they are prompted all the time to upgrade to the next iOS. But I digress. Um, this old friend Pete, they're working on a mutual science project. At least that's the impression I got. I know it's made clearer later. Yes. But I love that we're just kind of mid conversation, and you pick up. Is it his? Is it is it the friend's project? Is it Stamets' project? No, it's kind of both. Yes, this is his buddy Strahl over there on the Glen, and uh, talk of uh, Spirians here, the the conservative twelve. Whereas uh, um, later on, there's discussion of going to Spirian nine hundred, 
which uh, could be dangerous. It's around this time that uh, the Burnham uh, approaches Stamets. That's where the uh, the guy on the other end says, oh, Lurker, and he ends the conversation. Um, but this code that Burnham has been working on, is it astrophysics? Is it biological? Uh, and uh, he wonders why she should need to be told more. And then she just right back to him. It's his call, you know, kind of quietly reminding him, you are the boss here. If you're not giving me, giving me enough information to do my job, so be it. But she has found a mistake. And uh, I believe reference had been made at the top of the scene about that secret area requires a breath scan. Mm -hmm. I did not think I heard that correctly the first time. Uh, but it's at this point where Stamets indeed leaves. He gives the breath scan. I guess that wasn't a joke. And Pete, just want to call the slightest little bit of replicated story baloney. Why is it a breath scan and not something else? Because they need something that you can steal and replicate later on in the episode. And going to Stamets and plucking out an eyeball, i.e., uh, you know, a myriad of uh, retinal scan, you know, uh, type scenarios that wasn't going to work. So I don't know the breast scan is I don't know how to write that better, but it's a slightly little weak point. We've never seen it in Star Trek before, uh, at least as far as Starfleet's concerned. Uh, I have Maybe seen that's it. why they phased it out. Pete. They realized <laughs> nonsense like this was going on uh alien resurrection there's a there's a breast scan and it is played for laughs because uh as the uh dan hadaya character does it it doesn't read the first time as he's <sighs> breathing on the uh register there um but later on uh in their quarters tilly is snoring here and uh burnham who was identified in the previous scene as a lurker uh, looks at first like she's either going to Vulcan neck pinch her or just choke her out, but instead takes the napkin there and uh, gets the saliva, um, puts it on the uh, the breath scan, uh, and then she's able to access this area as Cadet Sylvia Tilly, Matt, and uh, Michael Burnham gasps. Uh, yes, Pete, it looks like a Garden of Eden, perhaps a pleasure planet, as some might say. Uh, I'm actually surprised that we didn't get more of it, and, and that's probably to the to the benefit of the show. This was a longer episode than the last one. We discussed in the last episode how that probably was shorter because it really was a two-hour episode cut in half across broadcast and digital, blah, blah, blah. Here, though, I like the, the, the efficiency that we're getting we spent you know a good number of minutes in engineering then it's you know how the breast scan works get something that is breast scannable get back in walk into it still keep things moving though we cut to Lorca in his ready room he gets a call it is above top secret but pete we don't get that call which i like as well Mm -hmm. He instead relays the information to the personnel and engineering, Burnham being one of them, that during the last hour, uh, while performing black alert maneuvers, that uh, their sister ship, the USS Glenn, suffered a total loss. This, of course, has meaning for uh, Stamets, who has lost his friend Strahl. And, of course, the rest of the crew here that has lost uh, a, another ship 
like their own with this secret project. Stamets uh, asks, was this a bloom failure? Uh, They're going to send a boarding party in an attempt to figure it out. It's going to be Stamets, Landry, um, and uh, everything being done here to ensure the project returns to their ship. I don't know how much uh, effort goes into writing a script that is better on second viewing, but this is a scene that is certainly the case. We get we get the main points on the first go round of your reference made to the project, and then, as you noted, Pete, your reference to the Bloom, which are out of context for us. Uh, wait, what's the episode called, Pete? Context <gasps> is for kings. So we're seeing things that are out of context. Oh man! Yes. Um, but we're not kings. <laughs> that's true. Um, more more importantly, though. The friction between Stamets and Lorca, that's accessible on the surface. It Stamets is giving some talk back. Lorca's putting him in his place a bit. It seems like something of a familiar back and forth, although not a uh, not a friendly one. The basic tension of command versus pure science. Um, it's better, my point is, it's better on second viewing where you have the full understanding of the science project, which we have yet to learn more about. So, again, I don't know how much effort goes into that sort of backward design and whatnot, but it really, really works here. Added to it too, Pete, by the way, if you haven't noticed, you know, the, the lady that gets the credited first, Sonika Martin-Green, uh, Lorca tells Stamets to take Burnham, which works out well because, like, it's her show. Yeah, and one other detail there, that there's a room that is shielded that seems to be some sort of curiosity. Uh, they're near... Klingon space now. Uh, so all the tension ramming up uh, on top of the fact that they're at war and Stamets doesn't seem to be a fan of Lorca. Uh, Stamets seems to not be a fan of many people. Um, he's, he's not happy that he has to take Burnham, uh, of course, the mutineer. Um, but Saru is the one to come to her defense saying that mutiny aside, Burnham was the best, smartest officer she ever met. And great line from Lorca. Uh, and Saru knows you, Stamets. I don't think that's the exact line, but it, it, that, that's the effect, which is, yeah, maybe she's smarter than you, so bring the smartest person along. Yeah, and uh, to to get that acknowledgement, again, in the, in the brief scenes, it just feels like we've had um, Doug Jones on screen so little that uh, he's got this tremendous reverence at the same time this fear seems to be a defining characteristic uh overall for saru of burnham we head now to one of the uh the disco shuttles not the prison shuttle although i think it might be a similar set um tilly has also been asked to go along pete did i did i catch that it was burnham who asked for tilly to come I did not note that, but aboard the distal one here, they have a conversation um, where she talks about how uh, she is often afraid of her first impressions. That's why she told her there were seating assignments when they weren't. It's a flaw, uh, and uh, she's worried how she's perceived. I just love that her, her verbiage overfloweth. 
uh, and Tilly notes that she cares too much about how others view her, whereas Burnham doesn't care at all. Oh, I, did she mean to say that? Well, they've come out of warp. Awkwardness interrupted by, I, I think, a well-played moment by all. Just this, you know, I mean, there's the sistership to the discovery. No sarcasm here. Pete, they get to recycle the model of this, the discovery, you know, the external model of it done on the computer. They get to recycle sets because it's the same class ship. It's brilliant. It's been done before in Star Trek. Goodness knows how many times in the first season do they visit another galaxy class ship? I think the answer is two or three. Um, but production behind the scenes aside, the notion that they are seeing a ship just like theirs now everyone dead now adrift uh it brings its own kind of acting potency to it yes and stamet notes the uh etchings on the hull there that that could have been some catastrophic basic uh, sac rupture there a little little difficult to uh pronounce on uh on first glance and here's Burnham trying to put it all together. Um, you know, he uh, calls her a, a Vulcan numbers cruncher. He's called her a lurker, uh, that she should be seen and not heard all this attitude. And, um, you know, she's rapidly showing that mind for which she's been noted by Lorca and Saru here, uh, Basidia is spore producing structures. Indeed, Pete, he, uh, he's, he might want her to be something of a hidden figure. And then he goes on and science shames her physics and biology are the same at the, at the micro level. It's physics as biology. Mm -hmm. I love that he is both again, science explaining her. I'm not trying to suggest that there's a gender or a race component, uh, you know, jokes aside, I, I don't think that's his uh, that's his motivation. I think it's just he believes he's the smartest person in the room and she needs to stop presuming things. He's going to spell it out physics as biology, which also works out well for, you know, those of us, Pete, that are not astromicrologists as he is. Mycologist. Um, mycologist. Yeah. My, mycologist, mycologist. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> um, he adds that he was just a happy little researcher. I'm not quite sure whether we're meant to believe outside of Starfleet or in Starfleet. I'm going to assume the latter, but he and his research partner, they were co-opted by Starfleet or the research was co-opted by Starfleet and the war effort sent to separate ships to double the research. And, um, and, uh, you know, he adds some extra blame to Lorca, which we are definitely meant to, to pick mm -hmm. up on. And yet another character who resents Burnham at this point, but quickly back to the the tech, I guess the work, the project says that uh, they're they're working on the building blocks of energy across the universe. So your your mind is spinning at this point. What what are they doing? What could it be? Uh, the the importance of it all that uh, it's led to this uh, accident. They uh, they land in the Glen shuttle bay uh, again. Doubtless a, a digital reuse of the Discovery, but all all completely within uh, limits and understanding. Uh, the lights are off as they make their way uh, into the bay, into the uh, the hallway. They're coming across bodies that appear not just mutilated, but seemingly turned inside out, which is a is a slow um, 
is slowly apparent. And, uh, and I like that because in a little bit, we have the delineation between uh, the fact that there are Klingon bodies that appear to be just, you know, ripped up. And then the, the distorted bodies as a result of the accident. Oh, by the way, Pete, there's also something really scary out there. Yeah. And there's also a Batleth, which is scary in its own right. Um, there's discussion here about the device. Um, and this is kind of a, you know, horror situation, something, you know, we've seen a little bit of in Star Trek in the past, but, um, maybe not on this scale. Certainly not on this scale. And I was watching this going, I know that there are people, hopefully not a lot of them, but I know that there are people right now yelling at their screens. This isn't Gene Star Trek. All right. I could tell you this, Pete. The Borg storyline was what? That was mm-hmm. season three into four. So I would have been like 10 or 11. That was terrifying stuff for its time. For what was on TV then, that Borg stuff was pretty scary. And not scary. I mean, the this first is. time we saw the Borg was season two, if I remember. And it's, oh, they're, they're out there. You, you'll get to them. Yeah in a while at the end of season three when Picard's captured and, and turned into your worst nightmare. Uh, Heck, and, I'll and, even do you one better Pete conspiracy where it's the bug in season one of next generation yes, where it's the bug people. That's yes. probably the scariest thing, at least in my, you know, age seven to 14 when Star Trek was on, that was probably the scariest thing I saw on, on, on TV. I was in uh, seventh grade and it was pretty disturbing, <laughs> uh, particularly when the head blows up and all the little, uh, yeah. you know, it's kind of a la the eels, the SETI eel in um, Star uh, Trek 2. Let's add so, that, a scene I still fast forward through. <laughs> so I guess my point is this, is this presented with horror motifs and the horror motifs are new to Star Trek? Yes, there are things I would argue more scary to see the eel going into Chekhov's ear. That's worse than scary alien dog in the background because you actually are forced to see it. Um, the the bu- you know, a guy eating a beetle. Okay, the effects aren't great. We didn't know that in 1987, you know, 1988 when the episode aired. That was pretty horrific. His neck, his neck pulsing. This is up there with that stuff. It's just presented with shaky flashlights and boom sound effects as something runs by speaking of sound effects we have old school tricorder sound effect which was definitely present amid the discussion of helical trauma to the body uh kind of like the spiral markings on the ship's hull so um landry talks about the braiding of the bodies and then when they see the klingons it is not the case so the extrapolation that they came over afterward i love the the door that's thudding and it can't close all the way why not matt because there's a leg in the doorway <laughs> it was great um so to to feel these chills okay it's it's different but we have had elements of this before but again not on as grand a scale as they're giving it to us on discovery you know what, Pete? Sometimes space is dark and full of terrors. It's just, it is the way it is. And, and I'm okay with that because I think the show gets to hide a lot of the, this is not Gene's Trek, even though, you know, let's not forget Gene Roddenberry largely left Star Trek 
original series for season three and had diminishing presence uh, during the course of season one. It's not to take away his his massive role in the creation of Star Trek, but you know, there's way more episodes that don't bear Gene Roddenberry's direct or indirect influence than there are episodes where he was part of the active production. Nonetheless, they get to hide in a story sense, hide some of these differences in the fact that this is wartime. Awful things happen in wartime, whereas in peacetime, uh, obviously, it's more peaceful. So I think they get they get to have their cake and eat it too. Um, and Pete, speaking of Klingons, um, does this mean that the Klingons might have the device? Uh, it's it's unclear, but we at this point begin to note scratches all over the place. Stamets mentions that the hull is uh, reinforced that something could tear through this metal. Uh, and then Tilly draws down on somebody who reveals himself as a Klingon and shushes her, which I thought was just a great moment and then gets absolutely laid out by this monster, a genuine star Trek monster. You know, I mean, just because of, because of the age in which most star Trek was made, most of these monsters were guy in suit. Usually it was guy in suit with a head and arms and, and legs and whatnot. Sometimes it was a very tall guy who appeared on, uh, on uh, the Adams family and uh, Kirk beats him with, you know, a phallic rock, or sometimes it was a guy in a weird shawl. I'm talking about the Horda. <laughs> I mean, which is an uh, awesome. Don't even get me started on the Horda, which as corny as that is, it, it might be my favorite monster uh, ever. On it, 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 it works because it works. It works it, because it's because a home it run. Works. It's the characterization and this thing chasing after them is, is not meant to be this um, misunderstood mother. This thing is some kind of weapon of war predator, uh, both. And, and it just leads them on this terrifying chase here. It's, it's got crystalline, uh features it's like a tiger it, it's great they run towards engineering uh which again i'm not trying to hammer home oh they're reusing the set the fact that they're headed to engineering like we as the audience don't need an introduction to the basic layout because we've already seen it on the sister ship and pete darned if the security guy who Brother, if you had stayed in the service for like 10 more years, <laughs> you'd be literally wearing a red shirt. Um, but he gets eaten right before the door. And uh, there's your extra hammering home of peril. Um, the door slamming shut. They have a, a little respite there. And uh, Stamets finds his friend just incredibly That's twisted. Awesome. And here's the hammer home of this is more than the monster gutted them or more than they exploded inside out or something like that there's something horrific going on here yeah the data logs are corrupt um there seems to have been a navigational hack uh point is they have been boarded by the klingons this monster is banging at the door and they're trying to salvage everything they can uh, they won't give Burnham a phaser. They're concerned about uh, what a mutineer would do with that. And Tilly in the reaction cube finds some kind of device, not the device, uh, it would seem, that uh, they're over there for, but something different. 
with all of this, um, we see that uh, Burnham and Landry are trying to phaser open the main door. Um, I'm a little, I guess at this particular moment, I was a little unclear. Isn't terror dog number one still out there? Or is that the terror dog, which is now trying to come through the, the door to whatever the, the, the science bay is that, that on discovery had all the, uh, all the, the, the plant life. Um, regardless, Burnham finally is able to, to get the phaser. She's ready to offer a diverting action. Um, giving a, a a quick blast to the uh to the creature the creature then follows her into a jeffrey's tube great to see the jeffrey's tubes yes. back um she starts to quote alice in wonderland in this moment of you know perhaps mortal uh, danger it's what we all do pete um although <laughs> it's I, such a vulcan thing mm-hmm. um to to occupy the mind in that way but you know so human at the same time uh stamets then calls her um pete she has to free up a hand to open the communicator i just want to point out one thing pete (laughs) if one day somebody were to invent wearable communicators that could also give biofeedback okay (laughs) then you could live in a world where Captain Georgiou's body could have been brought home and Burnham doesn't need to slow herself down as she crawls on all fours away from, you know, the Ghostbuster terror dog here. One day, Pete, they're going to crack the code and make a wearable communicator that can do all that. They, they're still working on battery life, still working on the antenna connection. You know, I mean, they're up to 128G here, a long way from 4G, but... You're talking about some kind of uh, Apple Watch? Uh, I'm talking about like the the Apple the Apple chest communicator that Starfleet could <laughs> Starfleet could buy the special the Apple Starfleet, Heart. The Apple the, I don't know what they they probably just call it the the Apple communicator and then because there's not profits in the future it would just be the communicator um, or communicator badge I don't know um, regardless though um, Stamets calls. They're on the shuttle where are you. She gives him uh, reference to get to a particular spot in the shuttle bay and to open the top hatch. Uh, slight question, Pete. How does she know the layout of a... Uh, I guess I don't know the class. Should I know the class that, that the class ship that Discovery is? given a, a class yet on Discovery canonically, Matt. Uh, but and we know uh, with Star Trek, it's all about the canonical stuff. Ooh, right. reference in the comic book. Sorry. The official novel tie in <laughs> not good enough on screen recorded. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, the, despite the shenanigans you might call on that, she knows where she needs to go. Okay. Drops into the shuttle and gets away, uh, at the end of the act. We return with, uh, you know, everyone back home safe. Uh, Burnham uh, takes the turbo lift to the bridge. She requests permission to enter. Uh, Saru, who's the officer on watch, uh, gives her permission and uh, notes that she has done well on the mission. And uh, just great line here. She was always a good officer until she wasn't. Yeah, it's a tremendous line. And again, you see how he's holding back. He knows that she is valuable, but what she did, he can't seem to get past that. And uh, she she has come to see the captain. She enters the ready room where Pete, you won't believe it, 
She, the star of the show, is being offered a place on the crew of the Starship Discovery, like Whoa! Star Trek. She's going to have a Star Trek on Discovery. No, she's not. This... Well, no. You're probably thinking because of the court martial, right? The court martial. Uh, the first officer is afraid of her. Um, she's a prisoner. Come on, man. She's going back to The Walking Dead, right? <laughs> What do you think she is? Corey Hawkins? But I digress, Pete. Um, nope, sure enough, because it is wartime and because Lorca and presumably other captains, although I don't know, we'll get stuff for the end of the episode to show that Lorca is really, really into this war stuff. Um, he's able to override all of that. Still, though, Pete, she says no. That's the writers toying with us like a kitten with uh, with a ball of string. Um and then she kind of starts to to uh, mind meld because I don't want to say the other <laughs> word. But she's trying to mind mind meld him. Um, why was why is it that he brought her there? She suspects that he is developing a weapon outlawed by the Geneva Conventions of 1929 and a few centuries later. Uh, and she knows that she, as a mutineer, would be kind of a perfect cover for the project or a perfect person desperate enough to work on it. Take your pick. I love to hear that she shows who she is. She talks about who she is and the principles that she's going to live and die uh, by. Uh, and that being the principles of the Federation of Scientific Exploration. Uh, so whatever spore-based biological weapon that he might be uh, working on that's explicitly forbidden, Matt, by the Geneva Protocols of 1928, you said 29, Oof. and 2155, she's not down for that. Um, and it would seem to be that that's all the more reason uh, to love this character and to fear whatever Lorca really is with this unsanctioned war that he has with the Klingons, you know, the one that she started. Which is a fair point for him to bring up here, despite the fact that he's trying to uh, manipulate her. With that, Pete, the story needs to move to engineering. So Lorca simply says, computer, site-to-site transport from the captain's ready room to engineering. Boom, there they are. That was handy. No pause at all. Um, and uh, with that, Pete, he has her enter the, the, the glass cube The reaction room. cube. Reaction cube. I was worried, Pete, that it was like the dilithium chamber thing because it had that the thing that Spock pulls up in Star Trek two and it's a, later it's in Lost Jack pulls series, up. It's an original series callback, the reaction cube. Is it? It is. Wow. Uh, not to be confused with the punishment cube or whatever goes on <laughs> in the mirror, mirror universe, which thanks Jonathan Frakes. We know to keep an eye out for that, but I digress. Um, from the other wall, he takes one of the sample of spores uh, the spores that she has seen in the cultivation bay, which, by the way, he knows that she has seen yeah. since he knows she broke in. Um, and this, Pete, we get the we get the 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 techno babble, if you want to call it that. After Trek called something techno babble that I finally saw a couple of days ago, and I was like, it's not techno babble when you. It might have been about the lateral transport system. Like these are all words that make sense, or they're sci-fi words, but they're all. It's not babble. Anyhow, Pete, organic propulsion system can you tell us about it 
Yeah, uh, these mycelium spores and uh, that what they're looking to do is not a new way to kill, but a new way to fly, uh, that they could go a hundred or hundreds of kilometers um, using this new propulsion system. The Glen, though, Matt, went 90 light years in 1.3 seconds uh and she quotes the line from earlier in the episode the veins and muscles that hold the galaxy together um but to fight a war against the klingons when you could be gone in an instant it's a way to win a war but that's just the beginning indeed pete this idea that uh, the discovery could just hop in and hop out uh in klingon space just like that uh and Pete, we get what is either a a simulation, although I don't think it is meant to be. He shows her that with these spores, he can send her to a multitude of uh, of planets. Uh, one of them, yeah, I know he mentions, I believe Romulus. We see another uh, a Andoria. Whole bunch of uh, one, I believe, Pete is meant to be an homage to uh, perhaps the mining planet with the Horda. I the background looked familiar i think that it was a background mat from classic trek that was used at least twice for kind of mining planet type situations underground type situations um it's the last one she goes to it just it just struck me as familiar from classic trek i apologize i don't have the episode or episodes in my head but i know it's a shot that was reused in more than one episode and i think he sends her there and there's your classic trek dose of uh dose of nostalgia yeah the the places that she goes here uh just to see them were around her so quickly um and the the tease about romulus and um you know everything that it represents as far as possibility it's it's the hook for us it's the hook for her uh even the the facial reaction that she gives she wants to be a part of this i think now is a good time to mention by the way you know aaron harbert said on last week's after trek that uh you know like romulans are a bad word in the writer's room mm -hmm. suggesting they don't talk about romulans here they talk about romulans oh so briefly uh, i just want to point out that at least the lore and i'd have to go back to check how deep this is canonically but the lore is that the klingons got cloaking technology from the romulans perhaps that's why they're they don't want to bring it up because they can't bring up romulans because they're not going to be seen for another 10 years until uh un until kirk's enterprise and whatnot so it's kind of like a catch-22 you can't talk about the people that you haven't seen for 90 years regardless uh he says that he needs her yes there are shortcomings but pete name of the episode context is for kings and uh, with that so what is her future is it going to be atonement will it be redemption how about a fortune cookie hey while you're at it how about ending that war you helped start boom yeah uh so all of the the mystery here at least the central mystery in this episode is resolved which i was kind of surprised they did I did not expect that to happen. I thought we'd tease it out a little longer, but uh, we open up some other mystery boxes uh, and tease them in a little bit. 
I think too, we also, in, in my mind, not that I want to spend a ton of time looking at how this show needs to neatly get back in line with, you know, a Trek canon as gospel. I feel like there's a ton of wiggle room here. But um, in my mind, there's a ticking time bomb on this technology where they're going to find out ultimately it doesn't work because we know that this isn't how they travel in the future of, of, of Trek. So we, you know, we're dealing with essentially in a propulsion sense, but we're dealing like with the atom bomb where they're going to make it work a couple times and then say the cost is too great or it must be destroyed or you know whatever it is. It, it can't stick around for too long. It can't. And as Saru is fixing his tea here, he hears over the intercom. What kind of that's... tea? What kind of tea, Pete? They don't tell us. <laughs> this is what we worry about as Star Trek fans. It's and not tea or all great. What's it going to be? Uh, anyhow, sorry. Back to the narrative. And uh, we're told that uh, the prison shuttle's leaving. His his little antennae pop up again. Uh, but then we see Burnham head into uh, her quarters with uh tilly and and all those curls that somehow get flattened down uh when she's on duty <laughs> pete it's almost like she has a professional hairstylist to get her ready in the morning um but yeah that that lovely luscious hair down and uh burnham admits that she will be staying um and then a really I would argue that that at any stage in the writing and even in the filming and the editing, you could have cut what Tilly is about to say. But it's like this. I'm reminded, Pete, I know you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, but I'm reminded of a scene in uh, in Fellowship of the Ring where uh, Bilbo is kind of ready to uh, – he puts his fists up to Gandalf despite the size and despite the power difference um, because Bilbo has this conviction in self. Tilly shows that she will be a captain one day, even though there are plenty of things that she doesn't uh, know. The implication being that she can learn things from Burnham. And uh, in fact, she's a big she's a big fan of Georgiou, Pete. Captain. Oh, indeed, Captain Georgiou. And that's when uh, that's when Burnham takes out a book, Pete, an actual book with like paper and some sort of not quite plastic, not quite not quite paper cover because it's La Futura. Yeah, this is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Of course, the work that she was quoting before uh, by Lewis Carroll and um, the the story here, Matt, how how does she know this book? That's because after her parents were killed, uh, her foster mother on Vulcan used to read it to her and her son. Yeah, and then the the reference that they were the only two humans on Vulcan, and I will admit for a second, I was like, wait, they, Burnham and Spock? No, that's not right. Then I was like, duh, they, Burnham and Amanda. And even without knowing when I was watching this that Amanda was going to be in it, at some point i mean there's just such a sad tenderness to the notion that there are these two people who are feeling the way you shouldn't feel on vulcan and that there's a little solitude and sisterhood and maternal nature and just the whole the whole quiet emotion of it that they had each other that is just so tender and and i feel better about about knowing that we will get to see Amanda uh, as a result of it. 
nothing takes away tenderness, however, Matt, like a visit to Gabriel Lorca's ready room and watching the USS USS Glenn take two photon torpedoes to the central nervous system and break apart. Yeah, I mean, obviously a necessary uh, image. Um, uh, Lorca notes that it's just a ship. Uh, Landry is there. Landry uh, leaves, and I think that we were meant to assume he was in the, the ready room. However, in a wider shot, he's in some sort of collection of curiosities. Yeah. I know, fair is fair. I believe it was Trek Corps. I saw briefly on Twitter uh either they said it or they were quoting after trek which of course we don't watch before we uh before we watch but it was like it was his menagerie which well done well <laughs> good 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 reference there one of the things in there uh, a gorn skeleton yes uh visible so uh Is that jason gorn the the the, the, <laughs> the friend of uh of uh one of the writers ted sullivan yeah. uh probably not it looks a little big for for jason but little gorns uh, grow up pete little gorns grow up they do uh their guest though um behind the force field and Lorca goes over and paws at it and uh it uh of course roars at him uh unable to come through and uh what a what a delicious point to uh end the episode Threat analysis. Pete, what's first on the list? We're going to start with those prisoners, Matt, on their way to Tillen. Yeah, I mean... Or Tellum, I should say. Tellen. <laughs> they... Clearly, they don't mind causing trouble against, uh, against Burnham when they're in the mess hall. Um, they also serve their expositional purposes very, very well, very, very cleanly. Um... And I think, I mean, not to put too fine a point on things, this is Star Trek. Uh, you know, the fact that we have uh, a Caucasian prisoner, a Hispanic prisoner, and an Asian prisoner, you know, somebody made that decision to make sure it wasn't all, either all white guys or all, you know, traditionally, you know, people of color going to jail kind of thing. I, I kind of like the multiculturalism, even amongst the ne'er-do-wells in the Federation who are going to go, you know, go mining for the war cause. And I think as baddies, obviously not central uh, antagonist in the story, but help to move it along, help to bring that conflict early, not completely bad themselves. The, the one, uh, though she's done bad things, she's experienced loss through this war. Two of them want to kill um, Burnham as a result of the war that she started. So uh, again, it, there's not the black and white, but there's this gray area. It is a very, very good way to underline the fact that she is reviled by both Starfleet and criminals alike. Mm -hmm. So uh, Pete, what other threats do we have? Well, I mean, is Captain Lorca a threat? We're, we're left at the end of the episode seeing this room of, seeming experiments and horrors that he has. Uh, Stamets certainly has no love lost for him as far as what he's doing with the war. Saru mentions uh, his, his lack of fear. 
we've got the the classic um you know characteristic here he's he, he's got a a scar a battle scar with the eyes uh can't wait to see whatever led to that and now he's got this monster aboard um we're not used to captains of our ship like this have we had other captains who have have been on crusades of course we have I, i'm you know immediately flashing back to uh terry o'quinn who also played john locke on lost in the episode pegasus and uh having been a captain of a ship with uh riker as first officer who uh you know tried some really experimental stuff and wasn't going to stop at any cost to, to develop a advantage really feel we're getting that vibe out of Lorca. It's made possible once again, by the fact that, you know, we as the Federation are at war and it, it suits this episode to suggest that Lorca is a little bit of captain hook. You know, he's up to no good. He's charming, but he's a rascal. I will appreciate if they further develop his positive charisma, even if we're headed towards a bad end. And, you know, popular theory around Fantastic Geek is he doesn't make it to season two because, you know, Burnham gets elevated to captain or Saru or something. We'll see how we get there. Uh, I would love it, Pete, if they take him on the route of uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. You know, is, is Oppenheimer someone to be to be admired or reviled uh, or both. We look back now and say the the bomb was a good thing because it helped us win. You know, uh, ask some people in Japan. Maybe they're a little bit less impressed with his resume. Um, regardless, I hope we see that kind of duality of, you know, he is trying to save people, even if it means Klingon deaths, he's trying to save Federation lives. Lastly, Matt, we have the monster. Uh, certainly a, a unique and compelling force when it comes to Star Trek. Uh, off the top of my head, the first kind of really, really effectively uh, created computer-generated baddie that we've seen in Star Trek. That certainly is, uh, is movie-level effects there, heightened by the lack of light. Um, however, with it ending behind a... Uh, you know, but behind a cage, if you will, a little sympathy for the monster. I mean, the monster does, monsters do what monsters do. If this is some sort of creature that's out to eat things the way they do, you know, if it's, if it's a lion, you don't blame the lion for eating its prey. Uh, but you do, you do feel for the lion, which is kept behind too small, uh, too small a cage. Pete, on long-range sensors, I think we have some theories. What's coming up on your display? What's with all the Andorian hate? Um, there was mention in the first episode uh, about the uh, the Klingons mentioned the filthy Andorians. That was the second episode, I should say. It was uh, Takovma uh, brought up the filthy Andorians. Here on the shuttle, the, uh, the female prisoner talks about uh the andorians what, what do you what do you make of you know every time we hear of andoria you know he flashes burnham through it late in the episode everybody seems to hate them i remember uh those blue skin 
antenna having uh, characters rather fondly. They, they certainly make an impression. Well, I know that your knowledge of Star Trek Enterprise is certainly greater than mine. It's the, the, the one series where you have me certainly outmatched. Um, not to suggest that I outmatch you for any of the others, but I'd say that we are, we are equals when it comes to uh, the other series for the most part. Um, how were they in Discovery? Because I could tell you, I think of them in Classic Trek, and there's, there's some of the trickery, and there's the false antenna, and this and that, the other. So perhaps they are known to be a duplicitous species, but how were they in, Discover, in, uh, in Enterprise, rather? I mean, they were like that, but I just <laughs> we keep coming back to them in a, in a negative. So I'm I'm just wondering aloud, you know, are, are we setting that up for a little later on where that could kind of be turned on its ear? Like, oh, these guys have a bad reputation and they come through. My next point, Matt, Starfleet's first mutineer. How do you not have? I, I understand you've you've done away with all of the terrible things that Lorca mentioned, except they're making a comeback, of course, because of Burnham's actions. But how do you not have a mutineer sometime in the first hundred years of Starfleet? Well, Lorca also makes reference uh, to roughly a hundred years ago when life got so great, you know, when when all hunger and want was done away with. I mean, is it possible that, you know, if you then don't need to have the military sometimes has a place where people go when they they're not sure of other options and that's that's no way meant to disparage the military but sometimes it's like i don't know what i'm doing with my life i'm 18 uh, let me join the navy see the world earn some skills get the gi bill and and i'm going to come out of this process with, with more direction uh if you don't have that sense of want then maybe people like that don't end up in the service uh in the star service and I, I don't know. It's just it's 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 more reliable people. Again, I'm not trying to step on the toes of our of our service members. Now, I'm just saying maybe maybe those things don't happen in the in the the beautiful future that exists. Here's a flip side, Pete. Maybe a lower level mutiny has just been swept under the rugs. How many times have we seen it? I mean, my goodness, if you even talk about some of the you know some of the the violence that has gone on in our own country in the last couple of years you say oh well administrative leave or oh uh internal review so shows uh nothing really happened or it's a minor thing or whatever it might be so maybe this is the first you know real mutiny uh versus some some lower level stuff that you know we don't talk about because we're the, the all but perfect uh, starfleet that they're you know manned mostly by humans where things are just swell we have black badges a first black alerts also a first. And then, Matt, we have the registry number of NCC-1031. Is this Section 31? Is this the beginning of it that uh, Lorca is commanding? It certainly seems to all line up to that. Uh, I think that uh, depending on depending on where you're coming from, I mean, longtime fans might not make that immediate connection. Uh, I, I know that Section 31 uh, made its appearance in Deep Space Nine, and then, correct me if I'm wrong, was explored more in its past in in uh, Enterprise. Yes. So, I mean, it certainly is out there, um, and certainly is possible. But I'm just wondering. I, I, let, let me put it this way: because you get this umbrella of wartime. We've already had other Star Trek shows that are more, you know, uh, tonally similar to to TOS. 
we've had them reference section 31. I think that this is a great place where you can really see it starting to bloom, no pun intended. It's it has its its history, it has its future, but in a war you're going to see those sorts of uh compromises be made more so. And how about the device, not the one that we know about that can uh you know, allow us to use the spores and to, uh, you know, travel such great distances in a small amount of time. But the device that was picked up from the Glenn uh, engineering reaction room kind of looked like a hand that they brought back with them as well. I mean, I think that if nothing else, it is a, um, it is a Chekhov's gun, if you will, and for, for new listeners who aren't familiar, that's the, the literary device where if you introduce something in the beginning of, of a play, Antonin Chekhov said, it, you know, if you introduce a gun, it must be fired by the end, otherwise don't include it. Uh, here we have this thing, which clearly it's not resolved in this episode. My expectation is next episode, maybe the one after that. Hey, remember that thing we found on the Glen? It's a who's what's, or it's a this, or it's a terrible that, or whatever it is. I think that it's I think that it fell off another episode very intentionally and will be used here. Pete, I have one for you, and I know I kind of referenced it earlier. Fine, there's this, we don't talk about Romulans. Do we get some kind of Romulan mention, appearance, whatever, because of the cloaking technology convention? That Do we get later on the great Messiah Tukumva who has died for, for the pure Klingon way of life? Do we get that... You know, actually, he was a, a, a Romulan uh, collaborator and, uh, and all these wonderful things that he can do. He actually didn't invent. He stole from the filthy, filthy Romulans. I don't. Um, given the attitude in the writer's room, at least publicly, I, I think that they are distancing themselves from that, that they want the appearance during the original series and, and that great, great submarine warfare episode balance of terror to be the first canonical appearance of the Romulans. So unfortunately I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we need it though. Well, I think of that great team of Romulans on the, on the warbird in that episode, helping out the, uh, the, uh, was it, was it a commander? What was the rank structure that they had? Wasn't it commander and sub commander? Yeah. But, um, but it was Mark Leonard. It sure was. <laughs> and being our own team helping things in the background, too, uh, hopefully to to greater fate than uh, than happened to that Romulan Warbird. It's everyone who helps us out on Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek. The costs accrued for the podcast are, uh, are always a major factor. And, uh, Pete, in this past month, we had almost a gigabyte, almost <laughs> 1,000 megabytes of content uploaded. And um, it's it's all made possible because of the help we receive on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. We've been busy, but you guys really make it easy. So uh, anybody who contributes is going to get uh, exclusive podcast content. And then you can determine all the various levels that you'd like to contribute at. Thank you. Thank you. With that, let's go to. Healing frequencies open, sir. Pete, two communiques uh, I had put on Twitter as the episode wrapped up with Star Trek CBS wrapping up for the week. What did you think of tonight's episode? We had a response from uh, Cam, that's at C-A-M-O-Y-A Mendez. 
uh, I guess that's C.A. Moya Mendez, who said, absolutely amazing, loved it. And uh, our longtime pal, longtime loyal listener, Bob Keeley, that's at R. Keeley, K-E-E-L-E-Y, uh, said, outstanding. And um, I totally agree. This was this was an effective pilot for the Discovery portion of Star Trek Discovery and a ton of fun. Mysteries abound. Clear things are made super clear. And, uh, I mean, just absolutely fantastic. We finally get the titular ship. We get to see Lorca. We, we have this air that just permeates this vessel. Not quite clear of the extent to which things are going on and give me more where where's episode four man i'm ready to watch now i hear you we would love to hear more from you dear listeners pete let's talk about how people can be in touch with you you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 9492 followers can't be wrong and while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with the P and DH. You could be like Bob and Cam, who reached out to us on Twitter, where we are Fantastic Geek. Definitely, if you are a fan of comic book conventions, of Marvel TV shows, MCU, and especially Star Trek Discovery, our Instagram is going to be blowing up in a couple days as we head to New York Comic Con, so follow us there. You can also send an email to fantasticgeek at gmail.com, as well as visit fantasticgeek.com and leave a message there. Pete, what else can people do? Facebook.com slash fantasticgeek, another way to get all of those things Matt's talking about. With that, Pete, we will be back talking Star Trek Discovery at New York Comic Con. Like I said, you know, next Saturday, maybe Sunday. Uh, certainly tons of New York Comic Con coverage coming if you're listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed. If you're listening on the, uh, the Discovery feed, then uh, definitely New York Comic Con stuff. Next episode, next Sunday. Totally excited about that. So with that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Here, Katie Kitty. Katie.